Bible. Acts chapter 14 is where we'll be. I invite you to open up with me. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a black card back in a seat underneath you, around you. Uh, we'll be in Acts chapter 14. We'll finish, uh, we'll go through the whole chapter actually in Acts 14. Working our way through the book of Acts, if you are new with us, um, just preaching um, straight through the book. And so we're in Acts chapter 14. Uh, Acts is an exciting book, and particularly, for whatever reason, when Paul gets involved, um, particularly when he starts on his journeys, it gets more and more exciting, at least in my opinion. So this morning we'll see some, some, some pretty exciting stuff happen, and it will be uh, a good time to, to reflect and to think about um, what it means to, to live for Christ. Now, I ran this summer a 5K, and if you know me, you know that that is not me, okay? That's, that, was a, that was impressive for me. That was a good thing for me. Um, and so I uh, actually somehow, I don't know, I posted a couple pictures up online of me running the 5K, um, and somehow in the circle that I run in, I've become known as like the runner. Uh, and so I'll be talking to someone I've never met or someone I don't talk to a lot, and they're like, oh yeah, you're a runner. I'm like, well, uh, the past tense might be a better use of that word there. I ran um, <laughs> in the past the summer I ran. I'm not a, a runner per se, uh, and it was a, a fun time, um, and it, it reinforced for me how great of a metaphor running is for the Christian life, um, and, and the idea of, of running a race, of training, completing, keeping your eyes focused, enduring, and finishing strong. If you remember, it wasn't too long ago we preached the book of Hebrews, and that was kind of the big point of the book of Hebrews, is that you've got to keep going strong. You can't get distracted. You can't get thrown off course. You've got to continue to run the race well, is the metaphor he um, leads into in chapter 12 as he, um, the author, finishes kind of his sermon in the book of Hebrews. Run well. And so um, on the day of the race, after training for a few weeks, uh, a buddy of mine uh, was helping me run. Okay, So he was going to run with me and help me meet my goals. Uh, I wanted to finish the 5K in under 30 minutes and run the whole way. Okay, And what I learned is that every instinct I have about running is wrong. Um, and so at the beginning of the race, I feel good and I have a lot of energy. And so I want to run fast. I figure I might as well use it while I have it, right? And, and my buddy kept telling me, slow down, calm down. It's a long race. You're going to want some of this energy later on, um, so slow down, slow down. So when I felt good, he kept telling me to dial it back down. And then when I felt bad, which was most of the race, okay, 30 <laughs> seconds later, uh, <laughs> he would tell me to, to keep going, okay? So about every minute um, in the race, I would start to slow down a little bit, and he would start griping at me, okay? Keep running. You're not going to stop now. Um, and it was, it was just an interesting time. It was a lot of fun. Um, and again, it just kind of cemented in my mind how great of a metaphor that is for our Christian lives because there are times when we feel great and we're running full speed and often maybe overexerting ourselves and we can be told to, to slow it down just a little bit and then probably more often than not, we're really tired and everything around us and then us are screaming to stop, just stop, just stop, let it go. And we need people beside us to, to keep us going. Um, in Acts chapter 14... Paul and Barnabas start this kind of marathon kind of race, and, and they have a lot of different things coming at them. And so it will be interesting to watch how they navigate through it, okay? We'll pick it up in, in, chapter, in chapter 14, verse 1, um, and, and read through the chapter and, and talk about it, okay? Um, 14, verse 1, Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. Now at Iconium, they entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Gentiles believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brothers. So they remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the people of the city were divided, some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. When an attempt was made by both Gentiles and Jews 
with their rulers to mistreat them and to stone them, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. Okay, you'll see a pattern here as they get started um, on the back end of their first missionary journey. So they've already visited a few cities. They're continuing to work in and around the Galatian area. Okay, so if you're like me and you need a, a kind of a plan to read your scriptures during the week to sit down and read the Bible, um, I would encourage you maybe this week as we're working through Acts to read the book of Galatians. Okay, Paul writes Galatians to these believers and probably not long after what we're reading happens here. Probably between chapter 14 and 15, Paul's writing Galatians to these churches, okay? And so it might be helpful as we're working through the book of Acts to, to read along with the books he's writing to these churches. So Galatians would be a good one to look at this week. And you'll even notice he's talking about some of the things that we'll see will happen here in the story. Um, and so he comes in. Again, remember, he's going to the synagogues first. He's preaching there. Um, and then after that, he'll move on to the Gentiles. Notice a pattern start here. Some believe, and there are signs and wonders that are done. So the Holy Spirit is working powerfully through them. And then some oppose Paul and Barnabas and rile up persecution against them, okay? They've got kind of these highs and then these lows as they go and announce the good news of Jesus. Let's keep reading in verse uh, 8. Now at Lystra there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. This sounds a little bit like what we saw Peter do way early on in Acts. Verse 9, he listened to Paul speaking, and Paul looking intently at him. Interesting, that's also what Peter did when he had the same miracle. And seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. It's about to get really good, all right? And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in their native language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostle Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news. We bring you gospel, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witnesses, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas get confused for superheroes here. All right, they get confused for two Greek gods. You have Zeus, who's like the head honcho of the Greek gods. Okay, they have a pantheon, so a whole little hierarchy of gods. Zeus is at the top. He's the big guy. Then you have Hermes, who's the messenger of the gods, like the spokesperson for the gods. When the gods want to talk, Hermes opens his mouth up. So you can see how Paul would get confused with Hermes, because Paul's a speaker. He's the one coming in and preaching. I'm sure Barnabas was okay <laughs> being linked with Zeus. All right, a little ego stroking there. Now, I know you mortals maybe don't have this happen to you a lot, but I've actually experienced something like this. I don't know if you know this. I happen to have a certain Captain America shirt. Some of you know the stories, okay? And on three separate occasions, as I'm wearing my Captain America shirt, I've had a kid walk up to me and ask if I'm Captain America. So the first time, I was like, this is just a silly kid, coincidence. The second time, I was like, hmm. The third time, I'm pretty convinced, okay? Um, so you might, I've, I've had this happen, okay? I'm public, people come up, and want to recognize you as a supernatural hero, and you're like, no, that's not me. Um, but they get confused as, as Zeus and Hermes here, which is just kind of an amazing thing to happen as they're in the city. And they even, the priest of Zeus wants to come out and they have this big celebration and they're about to offer sacrifices 
to Paul and Barnabas, who came for the express purpose of saying, stop worshiping these gods and worship Jesus. Now, what's really interesting is if you look at history, um, we have an ancient um, text, an ancient lyric. Um, it's kind of like a local myth from this area, okay, that told a story about Zeus and Hermes coming to visit their town. And they came and visited the town. And as the story goes, um, the only people who welcomed them into their house was this uh, very poor couple. Um, and the poor couple welcomes them in, and, and they give them bread, and they give them drink, and they're reclining and eating together. And then at some point during the meal, they figure out, this is Zeus, and this is Hermes, and they start to, to worship. And Zeus and Hermes go, thank you for your kindness and your hospitality. It's time for you, though, to get out of the city. And the poor couple goes, why, are we, why should we leave the city? And, and he goes, well, we're about to destroy the city. They didn't recognize when Zeus and Hermes came to their town. It's going to go very bad for them. So historically, what looks like is happening here is they're actually thinking this prophecy is being fulfilled, okay? This is kind of like a local myth that's running around their city. And they're like, Zeus and Hermes are here. We know how this story ends. We need to all welcome them and, and acknowledge who they are so that they don't destroy our city. And, and so Paul and Barnabas rip their clothes, run out, and they give them a really interesting introduction to the gospel, to the good news. Um, and this is unlike anything we've seen so far in Acts. Usually when we see Paul or Stephen or Peter or one of the Christian leaders um, explain why they're there, explain the gospel, they start with the history of, of the Jewish people. But among this group of people, this polytheistic group of Gentiles, they take a step farther back than that and go to kind of the basics. So they go for straight Jewish monotheism, okay? There's one God. The ancient world lived in a, a culture of polytheism, which meant there were lots and lots and lots of little gods, a pantheon, and you had to cater to different gods to get them to do certain things for you. And if you lived in the ancient world under the system, it was kind of a very superstitious way of living, um, where even daily tasks could be riddled with obligations to sacrifice to the gods or give a ritual to the god so that they wouldn't get kind of mean and do something bad to you. So if you wanted to go down to the river, make a day trip down to the river to get some water, you might encounter four or five or six or seven different gods on your way that you would have to sacrifice to or give a ritual to. And in this context, there's this really unique idea, which was Jewish monotheism, which is there's one God. You can ignore all of the rest. The only thing you have to worry about is obeying and worshiping this one God. And everything else will kind of take care of itself. So you see Paul even mentioned, he gave you... Your crops. He gave you the rains. These are different Greek gods, okay, that you would have to, to worship to. And so they take a step back and say, we need to get this straight. There's one God. And the good news is that he's come and, and fulfilled his promises among us. Notice also that, that Paul and, and Barnabas are trying to explain to them that you don't worship things that are not God. There's a clear dividing line between God and creation. And for Jews and for Christians, that line is never crossed. It's never blurred. God's up here, we're down here. Anything created doesn't get worshipped. If it does, it's called idolatry, and it's really bad. God doesn't like it, and it typically doesn't work well in creation's creatures' lives either. It typically works death and destruction in their lives. So they start to get worshipped as Greek gods. They try to slow them down. It's a funny little line here. Even with that speech, they barely didn't offer sacrifices, okay? They were just, just enough convinced not to, to do the sacrifices. We keep reading verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul. So he just went from being called Hermes to now being pelted with rocks. That's a big shift in attitude. 
and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. Just like nothing ever happened. Just like, that's just run of the mill, okay? He was stoned. They thought he was dead. He gets up, next city. Uh, just, just business as usual for Paul. Uh, verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, look at this, through many tribulations, through much suffering, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church and with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Okay, notice in verse 19, what's starting to happen is, is Paul will go into a city and preach, and then these Jewish people will come in behind him and subvert the message he had given to them. If you read Galatians this week, you'll see him talk about these people. There's a group of people who seemingly made it their mission to follow Paul around, and after he had left the city, they would go in and try to correct what they thought as perceived mistakes and how he was treating the Gentiles and how he was talking about faith and grace and things like that, okay? And so um, there's this kind of uh, opposition, organized opposition built up against Paul. He's stoned, left for dead. He gets up and continues on. What will happen as he's wrapping up his first missionary journey is he's going to go back to all the churches he started. You see it, Antioch, Iconium. And he's going to meet with them, check in on them for a bit. He's going to appoint some leaders, okay? Elders here is not like an official title. It's just kind of a leader, someone to help guide the, the new fledgling church. He's going to pray with them. He reminds them that if you're really doing this kingdom thing, if you're really following Christ, you should expect suffering. You should expect tribulation. And then he continues on. Verse 24. Then they passed through Poseidon and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, Okay where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. This is home base. They're back at home now, about two years later, after completing their first journey. Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. I've got to imagine that this was like some kind of epic reunion celebration, okay? And so Paul and Barnabas come back, and they're like, get everyone together, we've got some stories to tell, okay? There's this one city where they thought we were Zeus and Hermes. How did they think you were? I don't know. They thought we were there about to offer sacrifices. We explained it to them. They were still kind of wanting to do it, but they decided not to. I got stoned and left for dead, but I got up and went off. I healed a guy who couldn't walk. Um, and you got to think Antioch, they have their own stories. Like you left and we didn't know who was going to preach. We didn't know what we were going to do. It took us a few Sundays, okay? But we figured it out. We saw this happen while you're gone. We saw this happen while you're gone. And they had this kind of celebration. They get together and they reminisce and they tell stories. And they all praise, praise God for, for all the grace that's happened in and among and through them um, as they, they kind of journey through. And now, the, the, if you were just reading Acts 14 and someone asked you, what is the Christian life like? And Acts 14 is your template, is what you have. I think what you would, would answer is, it's exciting. There's lots happening. And there's ups and downs and highs and lows. And one day you're healing someone, and the next you're being pelted with rocks. And one day you're being worshipped as a Greek god, and the next everyone thinks you're dead. And one day you're having signs and miracles work through you, and people are being converted. And the next there's a group of people following you around, to try to make sure your mission doesn't succeed. But in all of it, God is good. And his grace prevails. And then we can celebrate and we can get together and we can praise him and continue on in our mission. 
I think the picture of the Christian life painted in Acts 14 is just that. It's an exciting life with ups and with downs. With big victories and then organized, deep-seated opposition and persecution. And it doesn't take much to realize why that is, okay? If we're taking Acts and the New Testament for what it is, for what they're saying and what they're trying to tell us, you've got the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, the power and presence of God himself in the disciples, working through them. I mean, what else would you expect than for signs and wonders to be happening, for people to be being healed, for racial and ethnic barriers to be breaking down, for people to be believing and worshiping Jesus who you had never thought could believe and worship Jesus. And so they're seeing beautiful, awesome gospel things happening because the Spirit is working through them. And that's what you see Paul and Barnabas doing. That's what you see the church doing. That's the picture of the Christian life here. And then you also see a world that is opposed to the message of Jesus that is standing up and saying, we will not allow this. And again, we, we ask why, and it, it doesn't take us too long to figure it out. It's a, it, at its core, it's a power struggle. It's an allegiance clash to the political leaders and to the religious leaders. It's a threat when, when the Christians come in and say, we worship Jesus, we live his way, and we don't give much regard for anybody else. And you're called to worship Jesus and give him your allegiance alone. And what happens when there's a world that doesn't want to play by those rules? They say, no, thank you. Now, I would, I would ask us, if our experience as Christians and as a church, I mean, how does it mirror? What does it look like compared to this, this picture in Acts? And I would want to just be honest and say, doesn't look like that, Okay. Um, it, it doesn't look too much like that. We don't really see signs and wonders, people being healed. And we don't really, for the most part, have like the systemic organized opposition or persecution against us. We kind of go along to get along. People generally like us. We're pretty well respected. Everything's kind of status quo, and we're moving along with everybody else in history. What we've done is we have spiritualized and individualized certain characteristics of the Christian life, according to the New Testament. So when it comes to signs and wonders and, and these beautiful victories and miracles, again, we've spiritualized and individualized them. So, so instead of looking for, like, dead people raising from the ground, or sick people being healed, or huge barriers between people being broken down, we look for someone feeling like they're forgiven. And we, we say, look at the spirit work there. This is a victory to celebrate. This is a high in the Christian life. We look at um, someone defeating an addiction, someone um, finally overcoming this, this personal private sin in their life. Um, and, and we proclaim that's, that's, that's our victory. That's the Spirit, that's the spirit working. And, and so in a sense, we, we kind of downgrade a little bit. Not that those things aren't, aren't good, but, but that's really not what the New Testament is portraying. That's kind of the victories and the power and the beauty of the gospel. And then we do the same thing to persecution. Okay, so we look at texts like Jesus in the gospel saying, carry your cross. If you're going to follow me, pick up your cross and be ready to carry it. And we do what with texts like that? We say, well, that's, that means this person's just not going to particularly like you. There's going to be tension in that relationship. Or we say, well, it's that sin that you're going to struggle with for most of your life. Or we say, well, it's, it, your foot hurts a little bit. That's your, that's your cross to carry. And again, in the New Testament, it was literally, you're going to pick up a cross. There's going to be real people with real power who do not like you and will want to kill you because your message threatens them. 
And we've, we've kind of, again, spiritualized and individualized so that we, we don't match up too closely to, to the experience of the life that, that Paul and Barnabas are leading here. And I want to ask you, what's changed? Why the big disconnect between us and then Paul and Barnabas? Is it that God has changed? Is it that the way he operates or wants to operate or the way we let him operate, those kind of things, is that, has that changed? I mean, is the spirit changed? Is he seeking to do different things in the world around us? I would have to think not. I'm not sure that I've ever seen or encountered something that would lead me to believe that there's been a, a big change in the way God operates and the way he treats his church and the way he works through them. And I would think, again, if, if we look, we've talked about this a bit the past few weeks, if we look at the experience of the church right now globally, they're living this out. I mean, they're seeing these things happen. They're experiencing this persecution, this opposition, which might put the spotlight back on us. Perhaps we have by either shrinking the, the gospel and its demands and its radicalness or by just getting distracted or comfortable, perhaps we've, in a sense, shrunk back from the fullness of the Christian life as it's portrayed in the book of Acts. Paul and Barnabas, they, they have this real exciting life. And, and sure, they're exceptional characters. Even in the book of Acts, these are exceptional characters. But this is it's fairly consistently portrayed about the church. The Spirit's working through them powerfully. And because of the very message that they have, people who do not believe feel threatened and want to oppose it. Now I would wonder, I would wonder out loud if, if there's something there for us to repent of, if there's something there for us to seek after, if there's something there for us to... to at some deep level in our, our hearts and in our minds, cry out to the Lord and say, would you work more powerfully in our lives and in our midst? Would our belief in Jesus be so real that it would threaten people who aren't committed to the same things? I mean, you've got to realize that that's, that's kind of a, according again to the scriptures, believing in Jesus threatens the very power structures, the very systems the world's been built on, opposed to Jesus. And you've got to think that if we're being Christians and there's not that kind of systemic opposition to us, perhaps we're not really being Christians. Perhaps we've shrunk the message down a bit. I think there's also a lesson to learn here with the fact that, that perhaps our experience is not as extreme as Paul and Barnabas's. Um, there's also a lesson to learn here in endurance. I think what, what Christians need is emotional and spiritual and physical endurance, stability, maturity, the, the skill to navigate through life's ups and downs, to navigate through the highs and the lows, particularly the highs and lows of being a Christian. Okay, um, There's a big difference between the Christian life and just the life in general um, that all humans lead. You always got to be careful if you're at a church. Okay, I always get kind of cautious when I'm hearing a sermon, and it sounds just like a self-help book. Sounds like something you could have picked up on the TV or heard Oprah say or things like that, right? There's nothing wrong with three great steps to have a better relationship with your kids, but what's, what's distinctively Christian about that? I mean, what is the gospel message in that? And, and there's a different message to Christians who are experiencing these ups and downs as they follow Jesus of, of how they can um, maintain stability and endure through the end. And I think you see that here with, with Paul and Barnabas. No matter what comes their way, 
they continue on. They're unfazed. On, on good days, when their miracles are happening, then on bad days, when everyone thinks they're dead, they continue on. And they go back to Antioch and, and share their joys and their struggles and pray together and rejoice together. Youth ministry, over the past 25, I'm told by people older than me, even longer than that, has gone through a period of intense failure. And we're seeing it play out in the Western church. Youth ministry has been built on events. It's been event-driven. It's been a high-driven, okay? So what we do is we have camps and retreats and little events that, that pump people up on a spiritual high and get them just enough juice in their system to keep going. And then what happens is they get back to the world, they get back to their schools and to their families, to their friends, and it, it fizzles out, okay? It, it leaves, they get distracted, they're not surrounded by the same environment. The good news is they only have to wait two months, and there's another, I mean, go look at a youth calendar, okay, at your typical standard big church. Every three months, you've got a big event. Why? Well, that's the only way we can keep them going. That's the only way we can keep them on board. You've got to keep injecting these big events into them, keep them on this kind of high, and so they keep going. What's happened, what we've seen is, um, when you get to college and you don't have that, you have nothing to sustain you. And you're no longer a Christian. You were probably never a Christian to begin with. I mean, to be fair to the youth pastors. But the, the system your faith was built on is no longer there anymore. You see this even with adults who aren't in the same kind of big rock show event um, system, but, but Sunday to Sunday living. There's a big difference between Sunday to Sunday faith and then a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday faith, where Sunday is a time to recharge and get your, your bearings straight again and then go back out into the world and live it Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. Not only is, is a Sunday to Sunday or event to event faith not healthy, it's also dangerous. Because whatever kind of highs or middles you experience in your Christian life, you're going to experience lows. In fact, Paul says, if you want to be sure that you're in the kingdom, look around and see if you're suffering. I mean, is there some serious tribulation in your life, in your past, or headed your way? That's how the kingdom arrives. That's how you enter it. You have to die to the old world and rise to God's new world. And when a low hits you, like, like hits you in the face, like it's all up there, Sunday to Sunday is not going to sustain you. It will, it will fall out from underneath you very fast. Event to event is not going to sustain you. You, you won't have that, that, again, emotional, mental, spiritual stability to be able to navigate through the highs and through the lows. To be able to, to narrate when you see a big victory happen in front of you and through you, a sign and a wonder. And then to be able to narrate when it looks like the whole world is against you and everything you're doing is failing. And to be able to keep going. To be able to continue running the race. I would want to suggest this morning maybe four things, four tools that, that you and I could cultivate in order to help us stay faithful through the highs and through the lows, through the ups and through the downs, okay? The first one is training. We have to be prepared before it hits, we have to be prepared before we're getting stoned, before there's organized opposition against us. We have to have been studied. We have to have been taught. 
We have to have spent time on our knees in prayer, getting closer to the Lord, so that we have that foundation when we're out in the field, when we're out preaching and, and talking and praying and, and being persecuted. Much like a runner needs to spend weeks, months, years in advance training, building up stamina, building up skills, building up muscle groups before they're ready to actually run the race. Another thing that you maybe the second tool we could cultivate to, to be able to do this successfully would be faith. And, and the Christian faith is, is a very specific kind of faith. And I've tried to impress this a lot. Um, Christian faith is objective, which is a big difference from a faith that's subjective. A subjective faith is dependent on feelings and emotions and circumstances. An objective faith is completely separated from you, from how you feel, from what you're thinking, from what's happening to you. It involves that, but it's separate. It's not touched by your subjective experience. The Christian faith is a belief, and I think if we can cultivate this, this will help us again navigate through the highs and the lows. It's a belief that ultimately something is true, that Jesus has died and resurrected, God's promises are being enacted, and it really doesn't matter if you believe it or not. That doesn't affect its truthfulness. It doesn't stop being true if you don't believe it. And it doesn't stop being true if you don't feel it. And it doesn't stop being true if you decide to abandon it. Or if you have lots of doubts about it. And that kind of faith will be able to sustain you through, through intense, dark, deep periods of your life. Versus the kind of faith that some of us have been sold on, which is um, benefits-driven and feeling-driven, okay? And this is, again, I hate to pick on youth ministry here. This is another, another failing of our youth ministry. We sell kids the gospel. It's going to be really good for them, right? It's going to do this for you and this for you and this for you and this for you and this for you. If only you had Jesus, your life would be that much better. And then what happens when your life starts to not feel that much better? You find a new strategy, Jesus is not working for you anymore. Or what happens when you, you hit that spot and it just doesn't feel real to you anymore? Or when you just have lots of questions, nothing around you seems to work. Or when you feel like you're doing the right thing, but there's a group of people following you, working against everything you're doing. At that point, you're going to need a faith that's objective, that you can stand on despite your experience. I was talking to a friend of mine recently, and he is a very strong Christian leader, and he, was, he confided in me that it's been about two years for him in a dry season where, where he has felt like God has shut him off, hasn't spoken to him, hasn't come close to him. Um, he's frustrated. He doesn't want to be doing what he's doing. He feels like the Lord's giving him desires to go do things that he's not been able to do. The doors have been closed in his face. And he said, two years. I mean, I'm running on fumes here. And it was an interesting conversation because as he said that, it, it didn't seem like he was asking for help. Like saying like, and I think I'm about to stop. You know, like I think I'm about to run out. It was more of just a, this is a matter of fact. This is how it's been for the past two years. And it, as I was thinking about it, it was because he's really nailed this down. This idea of what faith really is. <clears throat> that if he goes 12 years without hearing anything, it doesn't change what Jesus has done doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change his invitation to worship and to obey and to trust. He has this kind of objective faith, and that will sustain him 
through periods where he doesn't understand what God is doing in and among and through him. So just training, faith, we, we might say you need a team, okay? You need a community of people. Um, I needed my buddy when I was running to be able to tell me to slow down. And then more often than not, to tell me to keep going. I wanted to stop. When I run, what happens to me is about 45 seconds in, or a minute, depending on how good I'm feeling that day, my entire body starts sending me one big loud message. Stop doing this. (laughs) There are so many other things we could be doing right now. This is the worst. This is not a good idea. And it's, 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 it's really a struggle to keep going, particularly because it's so easy to stop. I mean, it's so easy to just say, and I'm done. I feel way better now. <laughs> and I need a buddy to, to be in my ear and say, I'm not going to let you stop. Keep going. Run. And I need a buddy who had run before to tell me how to prepare to get ready. We need community. I think if we're going to have any shot of, of faithfully enduring to the end, of living out the gospel in such a way that Paul and Barnabas are and continuing and staying steadfast. Over the past few months, I've been trying to, to, to work out some characteristics of, of, of genuine community in Sugarland, Texas. What might it look like? What are some signposts? What are some checklists that you could, you could have for, are you in, do you have that team around you? And, and so I've worked out a, a couple. Um, one, I think you need people around you that you enjoy, you're friends with. You've shared hobbies and interests. I mean, you're, you're genuine friends. And that, that has to be a big part of it. I mean, you spend time together, you laugh together, you play together. There's this playfulness. There's this enjoyment of the relationship. I think, unfortunately, though, that's where a lot of community stops, is, is with the playfulness. I think, though, um, the next thing that, that's got to really be there is, is prayer. I think you need a team of people who you pray with out loud together, you both there. Not like a text message, here's a prayer request, or I'm praying for you, but like we're sitting down and we're praying together. And with that comes talking about the scriptures and talking about God and talking about what's happening in your life. I think you need to eat together. Sign me up for that one. (laughs) And I think you need to, to have some sort of sense of reciprocal responsibility, accountability that I'm not going to let you disappear, right? I'm not going to let you slow down and just never look back and be like, oh, I guess four years ago my, my buddy just stopped running. But I'm going to see how you're doing, how I can help, how we can keep going together. I think those are some signposts that you've got community. I think those are some, some things you can work towards if you don't. I mean, what's the, what step do you take if you've got a group and y'all have that initial kind of playfulness together, the next step, start praying together. See how it goes. Would you like to pray with me? Okay, let's pray. But you, you need that, that, that support system around you. Because when you're in a high, and when you're seeing great things happening, you're going to need a group of people to narrate it for you, to help you figure it out. And when you're in a low, you're for sure going to need a group of people to narrate that for you to help you locate your struggles in the story of God and in the story of what he's doing in your life. And then the, the fourth thing we, we might put forth is, is a goal or a mission, a purpose. And I think that's something that, that a lot of 
the church in the West, again, is, is lacking um, and, and something that is really important to sustain through hard times. Paul and Barnabas knew what they were supposed to be doing. They knew what they had been called to do. And, and despite what obstacle came in their way or despite what shiny thing happened in front of them, they knew they had a goal. And everything was, was motivated around that goal, to spread and to share the gospel. And if you have a purpose, if, if that's your overriding purpose in life, that will help you stay. That will help you steady yourself. That will help you, again, narrate the bumps and the curbs and the bruises that you come along through the path. Probably, well, I wouldn't say the darkest time of my life. One of the, the biggest times of my life where I've really questioned what I was doing. When I, I really questioned where I was and why I was doing it and who I was, was a few years ago when my best friend left our church. Um, most of you know Adam. Most of you remember Adam. Adam. Adam and I were both at the church here before either of us were on staff or in leadership or anything like that. And we used to just walk around the neighborhood and, and talk about theology and talk about our lives and what God's doing and where we need help. And we talk about the church and we dream about how the church could be and how it can engage the community around us. And from there, we, we were in the band. And then from there, I was the pastor and he was the youth pastor. And, and it was always just kind of this team, this team effort. Um, and, and then Adam graduated and had to get a, a full-time job. I still hold it over his head. Um, and he left. He left us. And there's a period of probably two or three or four months where it was just kind of felt lost a little bit. Like, I needed someone to remind me why I was here and what I was doing and why it was worth continuing to do. Why not go find something else to do? And what sustained me through that time period was a sense of mission, of purpose. Was a sense of despite the obstacle that was now present in front of me and the confusion that I had now, there was like a, a vision. There was something we were headed towards that hasn't changed, that hasn't disappeared, that hasn't been obliter obliterated from, from possibilities. And that goal, that mission helped me continue, helped me keep walking, helped me stay faithful. And I love verse 27 here. They arrived and they gathered the church together and they, they all declared what God had done with them, how they had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. They stayed no little time. There's a Lucan euphemism right there. They spent a long time together celebrating. They stayed no little time together just enjoying themselves, sharing stories. I've always, I've always said one of, my, one of the things I hope for here at, at our church is that in five years, or in 10 years, or in 15 years. I mean, some of us will move away, some of us will change locations, jobs, commitments, but, but we'll see each other, or there'll be a reunion, or we'll still be here and we'll just be talking. And we'll be able to look back, and we'll have all these stories of what God did. And we'll be able to, to say, do you remember when that happened? How awesome that was. Do you remember when we saw that, that kid really get it? And really received Christ as his own, as his Lord. Do you remember when we saw that family really healed? And then do you remember that time when things were not going well at all? <laughs> do you remember that time when it seemed like everything we were doing was not working? Like everything around us was just opposed to, to everything we tried to do. And we'd be able to, to, to share stories and rejoice and, and just be thankful about all God has done. And the only way we can get there, the only way we will be able to traverse that land 
is if we start to develop the skills we need to be faithful, to endure. The first step is, is really buying into what's happening in Acts and believing that it could and is and still will happen among us. The Spirit is still there. He's still dwelling inside of us. He still wants to work powerfully through us. Sure, we might not see people raised from the dead, but we will, if we're being faithful, if we're following his prompting, see beautiful gospel things happen around us. And sure, we might not have authorities stone us and lock us up, but there'll be these times where the call of the gospel will meet opposition, and we'll have to stay strong, and we'll have to be faithful. And we've got to start now to, to cultivate the characteristics, the skills that we'll need to get to the end. And so this morning, we, we received the invitation again to come to the table and to, to worship our Lord as, as one who's died for us, who sacrificed his life for ourselves. And at the table, we, we meet him and, and unite ourselves together. And we hope that, that as we worship, as we follow, that we would be used like Paul and Barnabas were, that we would be given the grace to stay faithful through the ups and downs of the Christian life. And that one day when we're old, we'd look back and, and be able to smile and laugh and, and kind of sigh and say together, how good was he? How awesome was that time together? Let's pray together.